You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host for today's show. Thank you very much for spending time with us in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Uh, back with a, uh, a live show, a new show after way too many reruns. My apologies for that. Uh, I feel like I don't want to do a show unless I'm passionate about it, unless I've got something uh, deep to talk about, and today we do. Uh, it's a nice thing as we head into uh, October, getting into uh, November here. This will be my last show before the uh, direct primary care conference in Orlando, our fourth annual conference, which again promises to be even bigger and better than the first three. We hope to see you there. So fall is here, right? It's and in Atlanta. We're finally into fall. It's very late, and you know, not till end of October, beginning of November, do we see any serious color change in the leaves. Uh, and it is finally upon us, thank goodness. And uh, this year finally has not uh, disappointed. But with fall comes uh, college fall break for my kids, including my daughter Margaret. So she passes through, and on her way back to school, discusses her travel plans and says, "Yeah, well, uh, I might miss a class or two because." I'm going to be a little later getting back to school. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait. Wait, what what classes are you missing? And she says, well, I'm just going to miss math class, right? Math class is no big deal. It's a it's a repeat of the same math that I had in high school because she went to a really good high school. And uh, and, and so, Dad, that's that's just no big deal, right? And I went, no, 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 no. It is a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because your dad is paying for the math class. So if I'm paying for the math class, you're going to go to the math class. And I did give her a lot of trouble, and I think, although I couldn't prove it, did she leave early to uh, to get back uh, from Atlanta to Tuscaloosa to the University of Alabama to make it to math class. So uh, my daughter um, is not the only one who is having trouble attending math class. Uh, recent news uh, demonstrates that the supporters of Medicare for All have also had a little trouble attending math class, although they finally did. Uh, and Elizabeth Warren, probably the number two proponent of Medicare for All behind uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, has finally uh, attended math class and came up with a plan uh, that would cost $52 trillion, uh, five to $52 trillion over 10 years, or $5.2 trillion a year average uh, for uh, for health care. Uh, and this is her Medicare for All uh, proposal, which is a, a huge inflation over the existing uh, uh, health care. Uh, you know, I'm, you have to build inflation into your calculations, but the current uh, annual spending for health care is between three and a half and four trillion per year. So, if you multiply that through, the average would be going up some, but uh, it's still uh, you know an awful lot of money. Certainly doesn't uh, represent any savings over our current health care spending, and and probably uh, you know talks about a lot of bloat. Uh, in in healthcare spending, so uh, she goes to math class. So exactly what sort of figures and numbers did she uh, put out there? Well, she has methods of cutting costs and methods of raising revenue to try to bring that fifty two trillion number into balance. And so there's a number of of cost cutting or allegedly cost cutting measures. Uh, one of which is to uh, change the method by which hospitals are paid so that they are paid less. 
uh, something called package payments, and some of that's already done uh, in certain bundled payment schemes. But expand that and, and wave your magic wand and talk a lot and not say very much, and somehow that saves some money. Now, number two is to, of course, and we knew this one was coming, pay doctors less uh, for the care that they provide to bring the rates for hospital-based physicians down to the rates uh, for private practice physicians such as myself. And my, my first gut reaction to that was, oh, well, maybe that's not so bad. If they can live with it, I can live with it. But you realize what would happen is that hospitals would use this as an excuse uh, as a segue to cut the uh, salary of their employed physicians even more. Uh, and so you, you really wouldn't see uh, any sort of leveling of the playing field. You'd simply see the doctors take it out on the doctor's hides, and I don't like that at all, of course. Uh, and then comes a series of assumptions on uh, cost-cutting that uh, make things uh, even worse. Assume that, that uh, administrative costs can be lowered. How are you going to do that? I don't know where that assumption comes from. Assume that they're going to be able to get steep drug discounts, another mystery. Uh, and, and I imagine I know where this is coming from, that if they're just one great big giant payer that represents every single person in the United States, that somehow they get more purchasing power by volume. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, if they, if they try to dictate the price of, uh, of a medicine, uh, the suppliers, the drug companies, can simply respond with a shortage and just say, look, we can't afford to produce enough drug for that price Uh, and as hospitals and patients clamor for access to the drug uh, then the government will realize all they have to do is raise taxes and they can raise the money to pay more money for medicine and we know this is true i mean if medicare and medicaid couldn't lower drug prices based on the volume discounting they have now where the federal government almost pays for almost half of all health care you know doubling a huge number to a double huge number isn't going to make any difference if you couldn't get a volume discount and lower prices with what you have now Now, how are you going to do it with double? It makes no sense. And then, of course, they assume, and this is another ridiculous assumption, that somehow the rate of inflation of healthcare spending is going to be a smaller number than the ones that are predicted and commonly accepted at about 3 to 4% per year, which is the historical data since Obamacare was passed. But those are the half a dozen or so pipe dreams that they're going to use to lower costs. So what about the pipe dreams they're going to use to raise revenue. Well, uh, the first thing they're going to do is figure out, okay, as an employer, how much money did you spend on health care premiums in in recent history? Oh, what's that number? $500,000? Okay, that's what you owe us, the federal government. And, And somehow come up with a methodology, and I couldn't research into the weeds in time for the show long enough to figure out exactly what that methodology is. And I'm not even sure the methodology exists, but the intent is that whatever an employer is paying in health care premiums for its employees, that money will somehow be transferred over to the federal government. So whatever you're paying private insurance, you will turn around and pay dollar for dollar to the federal government. And not only will private employers do that, but state and local governments will also do that, and that is step two. So they're simply rechanneling the revenue stream from uh, insurance premiums to private insurance companies and rechanneling that straight uh, into the federal coffers by a methodology that I don't think anyone knows. Uh, certainly, I don't know. So those are the first two measures. The second one is, or the third one, I should say, is a pipe dream for IRS reinforcement, right? There are estimates out there of how much money, uh, you know, the, the, the central business office of the government um, estimates a certain amount that uh, the IRS could collect if they were more vigorous with reinforcement. And it turns out that the assumption Elizabeth Warren puts into the mix takes that CBO figure and multiplies it by a whopping 65 uh, their estimate of how much extra 
the IRS can collect by stricter reinforcement is 65 times the estimates of the CBO. So, again, another ridiculous pipe dream. Number four on the revenue-raising list is to change the, the method by which capital gains is collected. Right, right now, you don't pay capital gains ca- tax until you sell your asset. Right, You buy something for $1,000, you wait five years, it's worth $2,000. Not until the moment do you sell it do you have to pay a capital gains tax on the $1,000, the difference between the $2,000 it's worth minus the $1,000 you paid. But you don't pay that until there is a sale event, and that has a huge influence on the behavior of investors. What Warren wants to do is to tax that every year that the investment gains value even if you don't sell it. So you could spend your last $1,000 on an investment. That investment increases in value to $1,200 in a year. you got to pay tax on $200 whether you have the money or not, which is ridiculous because you don't get the money until you sell the asset, but they want their money sooner. And obviously that change in uh, capital gains collection method will profoundly affect the behavior of investors, which of course they fail to take into account and refuse to acknowledge. Then the last one, which is not going to raise enough money to make a difference, which is to, to consider this. You work for a company. They pay part of your health insurance premium. You pay the other part. So let's say that they pay $800 and you pay $200. <coughs> Excuse me. So if you now have a federally provided single-payer Medicare for All program, you no longer have to pay your part of your health care premiums. Uh, and that would stay in your paycheck. So your paycheck would go up, your take-home pay would go up, your taxable income would go up. And so the feds, or Elizabeth Warren, I should say, is counting on the fact that you will keep that $200 that you normally pay in the insurance premiums, and by God, they're going to collect your federal income tax on the $200 difference, and that's going to raise some money too. Sure. Uh, what else we got? We got five more things. Uh, we're going to have a tax on billionaires. We're going to have a tax on billionaires, a 6% wealth tax, which is a tax on assets. It's not a tax on income. It's a tax on assets. So whatever your net worth is, you owe 6% of that every single year. Now, a few months ago, our, our colleague in direct primary care and our partner in crime, Dr. Chad Savage, wrote an excellent article. I think this is back in the spring, I want to say. Uh, yes, March 15th of this year. So let's look at the whole billionaire question, right? Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders want to vilify billionaires and say that billionaires got to pay their fair share. Well, how, what, what kind of numbers are we talking about here? How many billionaires do you think are in the United States? Just take a guess. What, 10,000? 5,000? 2,000? Uh, it turns out the number is 540. There are 540 billionaires in the United States, which means that you could list every single one of their names uh, down a column on a sheet of paper and have them all listed in 15 or 20 pages. Not that many people, which means not that much money. So what happens if we, if we tax these billionaires? We're going to make them pay their fair share. So what's that going to turn out to be? Well, let's say that out of every billionaire, we, we, uh, we taxed them and, and took a million dollars. 
from that. So if we took a million dollars from Williams, that'd be $540 million. Well, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren's going to spend $5.2 trillion per year. So that's one thousandth of one thousandth. So you, you would, you would get one ten thousandth of the money you needed if you took a million dollars per year from every billionaire. So you say, well, heck, we can take more than that, right? Let's, let's take a whole bunch. Let's, let's take more than that. Let's, uh, let's take it all. Right. Let's let's take all the assets of every single American billionaire. Right. That means they go from living high on the hog and driving Bentleys and living in mansions to living in a cardboard box under a bridge because you just made them penniless. How much money would you get? You would get two point four trillion. So you would get about half. That's enough to power Medicare for all for about six months. And you can only do it once. Right? It's not like you can do this every year. Right? You're taking their assets, not their income. You're taking their assets. So once you take their assets once, they're in a cardboard box under a bridge under that. You can't take it again. So now we've got half of what we need for one year, and we've already depleted America of all its billionaires. We've put them uh, under a tree. So uh, we're reaching uh, near the end of the segment here. We're going to continue talking about numbers in the second segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You can keep your doctor, you can keep your plan, and every family will save thousands of dollars a year. I'm Ellen Deal, and if you've been hurt by the Affordable Care Act, you can email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com to see if we can help. Small business owners, individuals, families, and baby boomers, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com for three easy questions to determine if you can get away from Obamacare. I'm a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry and here to help you for all your insurance needs. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Craig, uh, my, I can't even talk. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host on America's Web Radio and the Doctor's Lounge. We are discussing the topic of Medicare for All. We are talking about the finances of Medicare for All and that finally Elizabeth Warren and her colleagues have uh, shown up for math class. And uh, and so we're looking at the math. We're looking at the methods by which uh, Elizabeth Warren would raise money to pay for Medicare for all, some $52 trillion over 10 years or an average of $5.2 trillion per year. And so we were following through on the number implications. If you were to attack the evil rich, the uh, 540 some odd billionaires that live in the United States 
and what would happen if you took 6% of their assets like Warren wants to do, or if you took all of their assets? What happens if we plundered their assets, we raided their mansions, we sold their assets, we kicked them out on the street, uh, left them penniless? Um, how much money would you raise? If you raided the assets of every single billionaire in the United States, you would get $2.4 trillion, $2.4 trillion. Uh, you know, how much, uh, does that represent? Well, that'll run Medicare for all for about six months, right? We're going to burn $5.2 trillion per year under Warren's plan. So $2.4 trillion is uh, actually less than that. It is less than six months, right? You double that, you get $4.8 trillion. So we're still coming up short. That powers maybe four to five months of Medicare for all. And you can only take all their assets once. Once they're penniless, you can't take it again. So you've paid for four months of the first year of her 10-year plan if you take everything that billionaires are worth. So this whole idea that you're going to, uh, you know, raise taxes, uh, you know, wealth tax and billionaires, not enough money there. So what else is she going to do? Well, we were going through the whole list, right? We talked about, uh, you know, the billionaires tax, of course. We talked about taking everything that employers uh, and state and local governments pay in health care premiums and channeling that. Uh, IRS reinforcement, they just took the CBO number and multiplied it by 65. Where'd they got the number? I don't know. To say that, you know, we can get more money out of the IRS. We can change the way the capital gains tax is paid, where you pay it every year, whether you sell the asset or not. And that you're going to get income tax on the part of uh, your paycheck that you take to get to take home because you're not paying health care premiums anymore. And that somehow this adds up to enough money uh, to pay for Medicare uh, for all. Uh, you know, in addition to the fact that the, the numbers on the billionaire's tax don't even come close to adding up, the, um, uh, the, the plan fails to uh, account for the fact that, that when you start taxing something like wealth, you're going to see less of it. And uh, and we're going to get into some folks, some rather unexpected, I would say, um, sources of uh, of angst uh, over the Elizabeth Warren plan, um, because it turns out that uh, that all of these things uh, and there's a few other ones here, right? There's going to be a financial transactions tax on stock trades. Uh, there's going to be there's a Pentagon overseas contingency fund they're going to raise. Uh, and, and here's one that will make make you chuckle. They want to tax immigrants income. Now, how are you going to track that? I mean, most immigrants are, I think, you know, if you're talking about, uh, you know, immigrants that are, you know, undocumented immigrants, then how are you going to tax that? You know, that income is usually non-traceable because the people getting the money aren't traceable. Uh, and then there's some sort of risk fee on bank liability that I'm not even going to pretend to understand. But somehow if you add all those things up and throw in some hallucinations and some ridiculous assumptions regarding a, a slower rise of cost – you end up with something that somehow reaches $52 trillion a year. But in reality, none of these steps make any sense if you have any understanding at all of how the real world works. So what was the reaction to this plan? Uh, this is some stuff that came out as early as uh, yesterday morning. And some of these things are very, very interesting. Uh, the first is that some leading Democratic congressmen, Leading Democratic congressmen have come out against the plan or at least have been conspicuously non-supportive, shall we say. Um, Doug Jones of Alabama, Bob Menendez of New Jersey, uh, Ben Cardin of Maryland, Mark Warner of Virginia, and last but not least, Nancy Pelosi of California, all of whom have um, either damned it with fake praise or have said there's no way that they are going to support it. Uh, so that's very interesting indeed. What else? Well, two leading newspapers 
who are icons of Medicare for all, big government, uh, that sort of thing, have uh, really come out with some very, very uh, critical um, opinion pieces on Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for all finances. Uh, the most interesting one was in the Washington Post earlier this week uh, that describes the Warren Medicare for All plan as going into, and this is the quote, dangerous and uncharted territory. This was written by one Lawrence Summers and published uh, on November 5th, two days ago, uh, and uh, has talked about some very scary things. And this author is very candid. I have to hand it to, to, to Mr. Summers how he wrote the article, said he, he would love to support uh, a, a well-designed Medicare for All plan. Uh, he believes in the concept uh, and, and, and wants something that he can support, but nonetheless describes the Warren plan as going into dangerous pushing, I should say, into dangerous and uncharted territory. Why is that? Um, well, the first thing he does is to compare Medicare for All to some of the you know government-driven health plans in other countries, and he says, no other country. Not Britain, not Canada, no other country has as coverage as broad for as broad a range of services as uh, Warren's Medicare for All does. And, and no country does this without taxing the middle class. Um, and he says, of course, as we've just discussed, the Warren plan taxes only the wealthy. So leveraging the pipe dream of government universal health care uh, to the uh, class warfare of somehow punishing billionaires uh, simply because they exist. Um, and, and this is the place I got the 65 factor, the CBO estimates of how much the IRS can get out of better reinforcement. The Warren plan takes that number, multiplies it by 65 and plugs it into the math. Um, also, as we discussed, uh, the, uh, the editorial criticizes Warren for not considering avoidance behavior. If you tax the crap out of the rich, especially with the wealth tax and the capital gains, you will profoundly affect the financial behavior of the rich. These people are are usually finance uh, experts. Uh, they also can hire people that are even better finance and tax experts. They are not stupid and they are not pushovers. You will see uh, a reduction in the amount of taxable income by both of these methods uh, you know, I'm not smart enough to know exactly how they'll do it, but I promise you they will do it nonetheless. And if you think you're going to get as much money, if you think you're going to get as much money as you've got listed, forget it. It's not going to happen. Uh, Mr. Summers is right. Uh, and so this Washington Post article uh, goes on to some other uh, interesting criticisms, uh, talking about the labor market. Again, uh, low-skilled workers, again, talking about this taxation of immigrants' income. Uh, you know, who's going to hire these skilled workers when all of a sudden it's going to become more expensive to hire them because the cost of paying them their wages will go up because you not only have to pay their wages, you have to pay their taxes as well. Second point about labor. This is very interesting, and I did not think of this until I read the editorial. It is absolutely true. Uh, we lower the incentive to work because – Health benefits are no longer tied to employment. Now, I'm not saying that tying to employment is the best, is the right way to do it, but, uh, you know, who among us uh, does not know or have known in the past of someone who kept their job only because of the insurance benefits? 
Maybe they hated their job. Maybe the pay wasn't enough. But if the benefits were good, I mean, I know somebody. I name them right off the top of my head. They're very close to me. Uh, the only reason that they have a job is because of the health care benefits. Uh, the take-home pay is terrible. The work's not that good. Uh, but uh, the benefits are good. And it's, uh, you know, the, his, his wife is self-employed, has no way to get health insurance. And so... You know, I know that's true. If you make everybody universal coverage, the person I'm talking about probably stop working because there wouldn't be any other reason to go. It makes perfect sense. And then finally, again, we talked about some of the numbers that Chad Savage had in his article. The, uh, the Washington Post opinion piece by Mr. Summers concludes by talking about hard numbers again. Uh, and, and instead of talking about billionaires, now we're talking about millionaires, and that's a much bigger number. Um, what do you think the total taxable income is for all the millionaires um, in the United States? Well, I think there's about a million millionaires. So, you know, a million times a million uh, gives you a big number. The number actually in the article is $1.1 trillion. So the total income of all the millionaires in the country, $1.1 trillion. The total number of tax revenue in the Warren plan is $1.2 trillion. So by the numbers, Senator Warren intends to tax all of the income of all of the millionaires in the country. Now, that just can't happen. You can't tax more income than they have. You can't tax over 100%. There is no financial trickery that gets you to that number. Now, there's a few things. You know, Again, changing the tax codes will probably increase the taxable income of these millionaires, and there's other methods by which the money comes in. But the bottom line is you, know, you can't manipulate the system enough to tax $1.2 trillion out of a total aggregate income of $1.1 trillion doesn't work. So the Washington Post article, a very damning uh, article from – and this is the Washington Post, right? We're talking about a very liberal newspaper, uh, one that you know constantly criticizes Trump, is constantly in support of liberal ideas, and yet here they are really blasting Warren's plan. Dangerous and uncharted territory. Pretty strong language. Who else has criticized Warren's plan? Another major newspaper, the old gray lady, the New York Times – uh, also has had a couple of uh, strongly worded editorials, including one in particular. Uh, this article criticizes everything that Elizabeth Warren does. The, the title of the article, The Warren Way, Warren Way, that's a little tongue twister. The Warren Way is the Wrong Way. Very, very strongly worded title to the article and attacks everything that Warren's doing, not just Medicare for All, although that's the lead-off uh, uh, topic. And again, the author says, and I'm reading from the article, as a lifelong Democrat, I freely acknowledge that substantial health care reforms are much needed, both to achieve a more equitable distribution of income and wealth uh, and also to improve the economy, according to them. Uh, and and he, they say the Warren's way is simply the wrong way, that the armada of charges would be very disruptive uh, to the economy. The regulatory burdens would destroy the economy. It is a short but very damning piece. So uh, their numbers don't work. Uh, it turns out that our numbers for direct primary care do work. So c- consider this article. This is another great article written by Dr. Chad Savage last December that looks into a way to get universal health care coverage um, using direct primary care, um, you know, plus, uh, you know, minimal cost catastrophic insurance and health savings accounts. Um, so think about this. Start with the money that is going into Medicare and Medicaid, about $1.12 trillion dollars. 
um, plus state Medicaid plus the veterans and get a total of $1.5 trillion to work with, which is a small fraction of the $3.65 trillion we spend. Uh, put that into a combination of direct primary care, health savings accounts, and catastrophic insurance, and you can make that work and still save about $4,200 um, that can go into a family's HSA account per year. Um, wish I could talk about this more with the end of the segment. You've been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You can keep your doctor, you can keep your plan, and every family will save thousands of dollars a year. I'm Ellen Deal, and if you've been hurt by the Affordable Care Act, you can email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com to see if we can help. Small business owners, individuals, families, and baby boomers, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com for three easy questions to determine if you can get away from Obamacare. I'm a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry and here to help you for all your insurance needs. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge once again. Dr. Mike Karuchak with you again uh, today on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for joining us once again for the very best in healthcare policy chat radio brought to you by physicians who work all day seeing patients. We are full-time practicing docs and we do healthcare policy all night. And that's pretty much uh, about as, as much work for one lifetime as you can uh, imagine. Uh, glad to be with you again today. We're going to take a little break. Uh, I think from the usual flow of uh, healthcare policy, we're in a little bit of a, of a lull right now. Uh, the Democratic presidential field has been narrowed a bit. Uh, each candidate is coming up with their own little variant of Medicare for all. Uh, you know, you have the classic Medicare for all from Bernie Sanders, which is you will take your Medicare for all and you will like it. And there will be no keeping your doctor, liking your doctor, any of those things. There are other variations where some folks are talking about a public option, right? That uh, verbiage has come back into the uh, foray. So, uh, you know, there, there's multiple variations there. There's, And I thought about talking about each of those and see what each candidate wants to do. But, uh, you know, all that's going to be rendered irrelevant because we've got to wait until the field gets narrowed enough to know exactly what's worth the time to talk about on the air. So I decided – to look at something that's actually uh, a part of my practice, 
uh, as an ear, nose, and throat doctor because I treat acid reflux probably as much as any gastroenterologist does. The, the symptoms of reflux, if you're an ear, nose, and throat doctor, are different. It's not the classic heartburn thing. You know, we see reflux manifest as throat clearing and hoarseness and a lump in the throat and, you know, a lot of symptoms that, that might be uh, the same as cancer symptoms. So we actually spend a fair amount of time, actually a great deal of time, looking at patients and trying to decide is this a sign of cancer or is this just reflux and you know most times we can figure that out pretty well sometimes it's not as clear and you need to do some things to figure that out but uh, be that as it may there have been two major uh, items in the news in recent weeks that have profoundly affected uh, my practice and the practice of every ear nose and throat doctor uh, in terms of how we treat acid reflux, what medicines we use to treat acid reflux. And I think there are some interesting take-home lessons here uh, that are bigger than just the nuts and bolts of you know how you treat disease. I don't want to turn this into a, a, a traditional sort of medical show like the ones you hear on the weekends on talk radio where people call in and say something hurts, what's wrong. Uh, you know, we're not going all the way there, but we're we're getting a little bit away from the the hardcore healthcare policy to talk about some things. So. Um, I, as I said, I treat acid reflux. Probably half my patients have reflux as at least a, a component of, of, a, of a multifactorial problem. We see allergies commonly, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, two news stories have come out that have profoundly affected how we do things. The first uh, you've probably heard before, and this has to do with uh, Zantac or ranitidine, right, the, the generic uh, uh, name of that drug, which is you know one of the oldest and regarded as safest uh, medicines, also one of the least expensive medicines uh, in a category called H2 blockers, histamine 2 receptor blockers that have been around for decades uh, to treat acid reflux. They're available over the counter, widely regarded as safe until uh, this headline came out with uh, that, that maybe some some production lines making generic ranitidine uh, and maybe even uh, labels Antac uh, may have a, a probable human carcinogen called NDMA. I'm not going to decipher what NDMA means. It's a bunch of stuff we don't have time to talk about. Um, but this substance called NDMA is classified as, and, and remember this phrase, a probable human carcinogen. Probable human carcinogen found in some ranitidine products. Now, NDMA, this probable human carcinogen, is, is a, a known environmental contaminant. We know it's in water, uh, meat products, dairy products, uh, and the levels that they're finding in the ranitidine medicine, the pills, capsules, uh, is about the same as what's normally found in water, meat, dairy products, that kind of thing. Nonetheless, uh, the, uh, the FDA has administered a what they call a distribution halt on uh, generic ranitidine. So if it's uh, if it's out there, they're going to stop making more, but they're not going to pull the stuff that's already on the shelves off. Uh, they did do that once uh, last year for a class of high blood pressure medicines called uh, angiotensin receptor blockers. Um, they did do a full recall of that, pulled it off the shelves, I think, and told patients, you know, if you're taking it, call your doctor, get another drug, et cetera, et cetera. They have not gone that far with ranitidine this time. So a distribution halt means stop making it, uh, and Novartis, who makes generic ranitidine, has stopped making it. Sanofi, who makes brand names Antac, has said, nope, our stuff's good. We're obviously going to investigate extensively, but we're not – 
uh, we're not doing this. You know, our our medicines are safe. Uh, this is why you buy brand name in the first place. Is sort of the uh, you know implication. And so you know, it's still available. But uh, I'm getting lots of questions, friends, colleagues, patients, of course. Uh, now going, well, gosh, you know, we've spent the last 10 or 15 years getting people off of other medicines and onto Zantac, and we're going to get to that issue in a minute, uh, you know, getting people off of Prevacid and onto Zantac. So now all of a sudden Zantac's the problem. So now what do we do? So it's caused a lot of questions. And so, you know, even without the radio show to talk about, it, you know, just as a doc, we, we researched this and talked about it amongst our partners in the practice. And acknowledged, look, we don't have to send out a letter to tell folks if you're on Zantac, come off of it. Uh, no one's, uh, you know, panicking at at that level yet. So, uh, so that's fine uh, as far as it goes. But let's go back and retrace our steps a little bit. Remember, I told you to remember the term probable human carcinogen. Probable human carcinogen. I'll turn around for a minute. And grab my other iPad here because I've got a table pulled up uh, that is that sort of goes through what uh, what what does it mean? What are the definitions of a a probable human carcinogen? What's the spectrum? And I'm trying to unlock my iPad here. So here we go. Okay. So yeah. So the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, IARC, which is a part of the World Health Organization, has a set of carcinogen classifications that range from group one, which is probable carcinogen to human, all the way down to group four, which is probably not carcinogenic. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a spectrum, although, you know, never do they actually use the word safe, and uh, that's probably a medical legal thing. They just say, well, it's either carcinogenic or it's, it's more carcinogenic or less carcinogenic, but it's important to understand, and this is maybe the biggest single take-home lesson of the hour here, is that the classification is based on the strength of evidence of the substance's carcinogenicity, not the potency of the carcinogen, right? So a group one is not necessarily a more potent carcinogen than a group four. It just means that the evidence that it's carcinogenic at any level uh, is is stronger. Now, I hope I explained that well. I mean, it's it's not saying that group one, if you get exposed to a nanogram of group one from 10 miles away, that you're instantly going to develop cancer. It just means that the stuff in group one has more evidence. So what's in group one? Group one is carcinogenic to humans. Includes smoking, of course. Um, exposure to sun, of course. Right, we get those. Um, alcoholic beverages, we get that, right? We've known tobacco and alcohol are known carcinogens. And processed meats, which was added fairly recently. Um, group 2A, which is the probable carcinogen, right? This is where NDMA, the potential contaminant in Zantac falls. So what are the other things in that group? Well, emissions from high temperature frying, right? This is where they say, you know, don't sear your meat on the grill because the char is potentially carcinogenic. That's a group 2A. Red meat, period, you know, no matter how much you cook it. Uh, working as a hairdresser, you know, exposed to, you know, dyes and, you know, stuff you do to get a perm and all that kind of stuff. Um, and even steroids, oral, oral steroids are in that group. So that's group 2A. Now, getting down to stuff that's, that's not a probable carcinogen, but a possible carcinogen. What's in that group? Coffee, weird, gasoline, car exhaust, pickled vegetables. So, and a group three uh, are things we don't know that are carcinogenic or not. Tea is in group three. Static magnetic fields are in group three. Fluorescent lighting, um, polyethylene, your plastic grocery bags are group three. 
And then there's really nothing in group four. There's there only one chemical has ever been placed in group four, which is something called caprolactam, which is used to make synthetic fibers. It means nothing to me, and I doubt it means much to you. So it's basically by classifying this Zantac contaminant as a probable carcinogen, we're talking about stuff that is in the frying, red meat, steroids, hairdresser chemical, that kind of, uh, you know, that those are the other things that are in that category. Again, classified according to strength of evidence, not potency as a carcinogen. So, you know, know that when they say, hey, this is a probable carcinogen, exactly what they're talking about because the definitions matter. And when these things get distilled down in the news, you don't get the subtleties. Now, why does all this matter? Well, it matters because of the next drug that we talk about all the time, which happens to be uh, proton pump inhibitors, right? This is the stuff that we have used for reflux for the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, they had just come out when I was in residency training when, uh, you know, um, uh, omeprazole came out, right? Prilosec was the, was the, is the brand name, and that had just come out a, a couple of years before I started my training in otolaryngology. And, you know, they were inherited as miracle drugs, and they, and they were, and, and you can even regard that they still are. But over the last 10 years, there have been increasing concerns about using PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, the, the, the Nexium uh, class, the Prevacid class, the, the, you know, the, uh, the Prilosec class, um, for long-term reflux control, you know, one year, two years, three years or longer. And a long list of potential concerns, uh, the biggest one being dementia. And, you know, with the rising incidence of dementia in the United States, you had to ask yourself, well, gosh, is this because we're putting we're tons of people on PPIs? Uh, there was other things. Pneumonia. Osteoporosis was a big one. We all bought into that one because you figure if you raise the pH of your stomach, get rid of the acid, you can't absorb calcium from your diet. Uh, and so, you know, then you're basically diet poor in calcium no matter what you're eating. Could you get osteoporosis? Yeah, it's intuitive. Sure you could. And we all bought into that. So I've spent the last 10 years or longer in my practice until recently, um, trying to get people off of PPIs once we get their reflux symptoms controlled and get them down to, guess what, Zantac. So uh, recently a study came out, came out a couple of months ago, published in the Gastroenterology, that's the journal for GI doctors. Um, very, very impressive study which demonstrates that none of these associations have any statistical backup that all of these you know, loose observations regarding dementia, osteoporosis, kidney disease, heart disease, all that stuff, none of those concerns stand up to statistical analysis in a large patient population. And we're talking a big patient population. We're talking 17,598 patients followed over three years with a control group and a placebo group. No difference. No difference in the incidence of dementia, pneumonia, uh, fracture, uh, kidney disease, diabetes, all these things that we were worried about, it turns out none of them are true. And the paper appropriately quotes, you know, the classic quote from epidemiology that association is not causation. And so now uh, we have this situation where, uh, you know, everything's been turned on its ear. And uh, we'll get uh, that to the second segment. Uh, you're, t- uh, you're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four 
patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Dr. Mike Karuchak back here with you. Uh, glad to be uh, with you again in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. So in the uh, last segment... Uh, we were discussing uh, a couple of uh, issues regarding um, medications uh, and, and things that had changed, the treatment of acid reflux. And uh, the long and the short of that, uh, probably excessively long discourse, is that uh, the the principles on which we had been guiding, uh, you know, prescription therapy for acid reflux in the last several weeks have been completely turned upside down completely turned on its ear, right? For years and years and years, we said, uh, you know, Zantac was good, proton pump inhibitors like Prevacid were bad, and uh, all of a sudden now it's, it's the other way around, right? All of the safety concerns about, uh, you know, proton pump inhibitors like Prilosec and Prevacid and Dexalon and all these other ones have all been uh, statistically proven to be unfounded. And uh, the flip side is all of a sudden Zantac, ranitidine, uh, now is feared to have a potentially carcinogenic contaminant. And we discussed all the ins and outs as to whether that's really valid or not. But uh, now all of a sudden uh, we're doing the opposite. Now people are worried about the drug that we had regarded as safe for years. And the drug we worried about for years has now been statistically proven to be safe. Uh, you know, and, and what it comes down to again is, uh, you know, the people who were crying wolf over proton pump inhibitors are now potentially crying wolf over, uh, Zantac, over ranitidine. Uh, and so, you know, as a physician, we hear this stuff all the time. We do. And, and it, it sometimes it may appear that we don't react strongly enough. We don't follow the media's hype over these things. We don't run out and radically change the way we do things overnight uh, because we've seen these things, these warnings and uh, things come and go. We've seen recommendations get turned upside down where what you did for a long time all of a sudden is not what you're supposed to do anymore. And as a result, you know, we tend to react fairly slowly. And it may look like we're Luddites. It may look like you can't teach us new tricks. It may look like we're stuck in our old ways. Uh, and uh, this was something that I learned from uh, a man named Dr. Fred McConnell, who hired me into Atlanta in 1995. 
when I was young and freshly trained and thought I had all the answers and was smarter than everybody else because my training was so fresh and new and that, you know, there was, you know, I had new ideas that ran counter to all of the old ideas. And, uh, and so, yeah, Dr. Max said, just take it easy. You know, a lot of the stuff's been around for a long time. It's been very successful. Uh, you know, don't get so full of yourself and full of all of your new ideas without giving the old ones a chance to show why they've been around for so long. And so, um, you know, and, and why am I going into this? It, it circles back to, you know, health information technology and electronic medical records and why it is that doctors may have appeared to have not wanted to adapt it as fast as the law made us do it. Uh, and history has proven us to be on the right side, uh, that the rapid adoption of medical records has caused a mess. It has caused harm. It has killed patients. It has harmed patients. And, you know, in looking at the flip-flopping of recommendations uh, on drugs, you see that, you know, the experts don't always have all the answers. Uh, the experts aren't always right. And, you know, you have to take your uh, street knowledge of medicine and humanity and uh, use that to temper all of the things that come down the road. So that's the conclusion of my long-winded stuff on on drugs, changing recommendations, and, and, and why it is that is, as physicians, as the final guardian of the, of the welfare of our patients, that we, we look at the broad picture. Uh, and we don't, uh, we, we tend to have very dampened actions because we've seen what happens. We know what the future is, uh, it may bring with things that appear to be very certain and all of a sudden aren't. Uh, and so just something to think about. So let's switch topics. We have nine, eight and a half minutes left in the segment. And, uh, and I want to flip to something else and circle back to, I rustle my papers here, um, a little bit of this Medicare for all thing again, because there was a couple of thoughts I left unexpressed the last time we talked and we were talking about Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all. So I'm going to play you two clips back to back. The first is uh, I played it a few weeks ago. Uh, this was from the last Democratic debate. Uh, with Bernie Sanders uh, talking about um, uh, Medicare for all. Uh, so uh, here, here we go. Can you guarantee those union members that the benefits under Medicare for all will be as good as the benefits that their representatives, their union reps, fought hard to negotiate? Well, two things. They will be better because Medicare for all is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all. You don't know that, Second Bernie. of all. We'll come to you in a second, I do know, and I wrote the damn bill. Okay, fine. So we talked about the arrogance of Bernie Sanders uh, in that little clip uh, last time. We, we talked about this sort of monolithic, arrogant response that just says Medicare for all is perfect. It's good for everyone. There are no other relevant questions. And I know this because I wrote the damn bill. Now, that question was specifically about unions that had uh, had negotiated outstanding Cadillac-type health plans over several decades as a part of their, you know, agreed-upon labor agreements. Uh, they even gave up money in order to get better health care benefits. Uh, and uh, these uh, comments from the president of the AFL-CIO on Fox News a couple of weeks ago directly contradict what Bernie Sanders just said. So here we go. 
But there has to be a role for the hard-fought, high-quality plans that we've negotiated. Look, it's just unfair to say to somebody, you've sacrificed over the last 40 years. You've given up wages. You've negotiated a good health care plan. And now we're going to ask you to take 50% of the health care plan that you negotiated. If there isn't some way for us to have our plans integrated into the system, then we would have a tough time supporting it. Okay, that's Richard Trumka, head of the AFL-CIO on Fox News Sunday on September 1st, saying, look, basically, you know, Bernie was wrong. Uh, you know, you can't just apply a monolithic concept to a complex healthcare system and expect to know all the answers. So once again, circling back to, you know, Bernie Sanders' sort of arrogance and, and monolithic approach to Medicare for all. Uh, and, and it goes back to, you know, what Bernie Sanders likes to talk about when he talks about is, is health care a right, right? Medicare for all is sort of based on this concept that health care is a right and it's a right for everyone. And we've, we went over this question, I don't know, probably a year, year and a half ago, maybe two years ago when, um, Tom Price was getting confirmed, uh, as a, as a cabinet member and Bernie Sanders was putting him through the ringer over health care being a right. And we talked about that you, you need to know if you're going to defend, you know, limiting government's role in health care, you need to have a solid intellectual defense uh, against this question. And we went over things about this about a year or so ago, I think, maybe longer. Uh, but I, I've, I've refined the argument a little bit since Medicare for all based on health care as a right has, you know, come back full circle and is now being – offered as the successor to Obamacare. So remember, it's a gotcha question. Is health care right? If you say yes, then Bernie says that's it. You accept Medicare for all. There's no other way to make to, to, to fulfill government's obligation to, uh, to provide this as a right. If you say no, then you're a cold-hearted SOB and you look terrible if all you say is no. Uh, or you try to come up with some complex answer, um, like I watched Ted Cruz do at this uh, CNN town hall February two years ago. Uh, the problem is if you're going to launch into that complex answer, you better damn well know what you're doing and what you're talking about. So that's what I'm going to spend the next couple of minutes talking about. So I went to the Internet, of course, and researched the concept of human rights. How are human rights talked about? How are human rights classified? And the bottom line is the literature is a mess because everybody who writes something on it has some sort of political axe to grind. And so they try to, uh, you know, build their version of absolute truth to support their political views. But if you look at enough sources and try to approach it with a rational mind, you you realize two things. Uh, There are two kinds of rights. One is basic rights, classic rights. These are the rights that we expect every civilized society to uphold, Uh, the rights to life, liberty, property, privacy, uh, potentially add free speech to that. And all these rights have in common that they impose limits, uh, a ceiling, if you will, on what government can do. If they do anything to limit your right to any of those things, they violate your right to life, liberty, property, potentially privacy, and and free speech. Uh, It's a ceiling. It's limits on government, not a floor, but a ceiling. And, and so that's pretty easy to understand. The other thing all of these things have in common is that to preserve your rights to these things does not require the government to expend any significant resources. Now, you can argue they have to expend a few, right? They have to have law enforcement in place to protect your right to life. If you know a ne'er-do-well comes along who wants to hurt you, that's the 
obligation of the police to protect you, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some activity and, and resource allocation to do that, but it pales in comparison to the other kind of right, which is economic rights. So this is now things that you not only have a right to, but you have a right to them being paid for, right? This is where health care may or may not be a right, but Bernie Sanders says health care is an economic right, whether he realizes that or not, is you are fulfilling your economic right to health care by having a Medicare for all or an Obamacare with a subsidized plan or that sort of thing where the government steps in and has a very heavy financial role in your health care. So now what are economic rights? Health care is a, an example of an economic right. Education, employment, a minimum wage for a minimum standard of living, welfare, that kind of stuff. These kinds of rights are, are a, not a ceiling on the government but a floor, right? Each of these rights implies a requirement of the government to put infrastructure in place to not only give you access to these things but to pay for them as well. Now, these are not obligations of a civilized society. A civilized society may choose to provide some or all of these things, but it's not black and white. You can provide a little bit of food or you can provide a lot of food. You can provide you know, bread and water or you can provide steak and lobster. Uh, you know, For health care, you can provide simple basic access or you can provide transplant care. Uh, you know, you know, a, a, a minimum wage can be five dollars an hour or fifty dollars an hour. So there's all of these. There's a spectrum here, and so then when you circle back to healthcare as a right, is healthcare a classic basic right, or is it an economic right? And obviously, the bar, if it's an economic right, is obviously far higher. So let's look at an example. Let's look at the right to bear arms, right? We, you know, we have a Second Amendment in the Constitution, whether you like it or not, that says the rights of the people to hold and bear arms should not be infringed. But no one at the NRA would ever suggest that you can walk into a gun store and say, because of the right to bear arms, you're going to give me a gun for free, right? We have the right to bear arms as a basic right, not an economic right. And so this may be the way to answer the health care as a right question. We can say health care is a basic right, right? The, health, the government can't surround the hospital with troops and, and stop you from, uh, to, from entering the hospital for care, but it's not an economic right. You can't walk into the hospital and demand care simply because you exist, although you can do that in the emergency room. So just to, as something to think about is the, the splitting of basic right versus economic right to come up with a more sophisticated answer to the question, is health care a right? You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.